You're listening to The Right Process, a podcast in which one writer tells the story of completing one work from concept to completion. I'm your host, Charlie Jensen. The Right Process is brought to you by the Writers Program at UCLA Extension, helping you reach your writing goals one page at a time. Enroll now at uclaextension.edu. Hi, I'm Atif Rashid, and the novel I wrote is titled Portrait of Sebastian Khan. Atif Rashid is the author of the novel Portrait of Sebastian Khan, a literary comedy about the complicated romantic life of a Muslim-American art history student. He's published short stories in various literary magazines, including the Massachusetts Review, Barrel House, and Triangle House Review, and nonfiction pieces in LitHub and the Los Angeles Review of Books. He writes regularly about the craft of fiction writing for the Kenyan Review blog, and he posts more informal pieces about politics and movies on his Medium page. Sebastian Kahn is 380 days away from the end of college. An art history major with a fondness for the pre-Raphaelites and a dislike of long-term commitments, romantic and otherwise, Sebastian starts dating Fatima, who's determined to transition smoothly from campus life to a stable white-collar professional career. Sebastian's membership in Model United Nations, though, takes him to colleges across North America, foisting upon him all manner of temptations and testing his commitment to Fatima and his readiness for adulthood. Part satire of college life circa 2011, and part serious exploration of art's fundamental unreality, Portrait of Sebastian Khan is a humorous coming-of-age novel about a charismatic but emotionally stunted Muslim-American Don Draper who wins as many hearts as he breaks. When I graduated college, I really wanted to write a novel about the college experience. And I've noticed we don't have a lot of college novels. For me, college was such a strange moment in a kind of process of coming of age. So I went to UC Berkeley for four years. And, you know, Berkeley has this reputation of being very progressive college from the 60s, protesters and all of that. And that was definitely, you know, it's a little romanticized, right? And that was definitely a thing that was in my mind. But then the reality of Berkeley today, I think, is very different. I went there right before the Occupy protests happened, and this is when the book is set, from kind of like 2007 to 2011. College hadn't really achieved the kind of reputation it has now of like college students protesting and being activists and having a kind of social justice. You know, I don't use the term neoliberal in the novel, but I would say the novel is in some ways like a snapshot and a satirical snapshot, I would say, of like what college was like in this very kind of transitional, you know, neoliberal era. At first, my purpose was just to write like a kind of uh, version of my own experiences. But then as I was working on the novel and thinking about it, I realized in order to kind of convey what I wanted to about college, I had to make it a little bit more exaggerated and kind of distance it from my own experience. So first, I just wanted to depict the experience of what this college experience was like, and specifically this idea of feeling kind of like you don't want to graduate and you don't want to face the real world. That feeling that a lot of people my age had and that I definitely had of college as this like fake world that you don't want to lose. And so the main character, Sebastian Kahn, is an art history student and he studies 19th century art and he kind of idealizes this pre-Raphaelite set of artists who don't really depict the real world in a realistic way, right? They depict it in a very fanciful, imagined, romantic way. And the cover of my novel has a painting by Thomas Cole called The Voyage of life youth. It's part of this series where there's four different panels that basically depict the transition people go through in life. So youth is the second one, and then manhood is the third one. And in youth, there's 
beautiful, lush, green garden everywhere. There's a guy in a boat going down a river, guided by an angel, and there's a palace in the sky. The romantics were very obvious with their symbolism sometimes, so the palace is supposed to represent youthful aspiration and all of that stuff. For me, that was how I think I felt about college. Like, oh, the world is perfect and great, and it's this idealized setting. And then in your graduating year, in your senior year, you start to realize, oh, I have to find a job. I have to go into the real world. And especially for, you know, some people who come from privileged backgrounds where they're not necessarily dealing with things like student debt, they never think about that in college. I was interested in using a character who is immature because he's never really had to think about the real world his reaction to that, and using that as a way of kind of critiquing, I would say, that immaturity that comes from college. So the year after I graduated, I went to a graduate program in the UK, which was in many ways just putting off graduating and facing the real world for another year. I don't always like saying this, but I went to Oxford for one year uh, for grad school. Uh, I know it sounds kind of pretentious, but I, what I discovered was Oxford is a kind of school where it might be hard to get in, but once you get in, there's not really much expected of you. They have a very lenient, very generous uh, schedule. Um, they call it eight weeks on, six weeks off. So there's three, you know, three quarters for eight weeks only. You know, I was in a one-year master's program, and all our responsibility was was essentially to have a thesis done by the end of the year. And I didn't really like, you know, I was studying history, and I had at first thought I wanted to be a professor, get a PhD, etc. But I soon discovered I didn't really like doing academic research in history. And so I spent the sort of year there basically writing the novel a lot. And the atmosphere is kind of conducive to that where you just have time and space. And so when I wrote the first draft, it was very much like not pure inspiration. I, I did have to sit down and say, okay, I do want to finish this. I do want to finish this. But I think I'd had experience finishing things because when I was in high school, I used to write a lot of novels as well and short stories. They were very much like fantasy and science fiction novels. That was my big obsession in high school. When I was in, I think it might have been earlier than that. It might have been middle school to ninth grade. I had sort of finished my first novel in that like I'd written a full 250 page science fiction novel called Space Battles, which was my version of Star Wars. And so <laughs> and it's a great feeling to finish it, even if it's terrible, right? Even if you're just rushing to finish it at the end. I don't know where Space Battles is. I really want to find it again. It's, it's somewhere on, I think it might be like on a floppy disk or a CD or something where I'd saved it because this was like, you know, the early 2000s. And so, yeah, I want to find it again because I, I would love to reread it and see what, you know, what it's like. When I did finally finish it, it was traveling in Europe, actually. So I had done one of those post-graduation like Europe trips for a few months, backpacking, staying in hostels, that kind of stuff. And it was a lot of fun, but I remember I would try to work on my novel on that trip as well. And so I do remember finishing it in a hostel in Marseille and feeling really happy at that time. And obviously I had no idea that it would take another <laughs> decade for that to actually get published. But I do remember that was the moment where I finished, in, in scare quotes, <laughs> the, the novel. I feel like looking back... I didn't really know anything about, about novel writing, and I, and I moved to Los Angeles, but I had never really taken any writing classes. I didn't really have the craft of it. I didn't feel good about the novel. I was like, oh, this isn't really working. Kind of put it away. At one point, I was interested in turning it into a screenplay because, you know, you're in Los Angeles, and that's the atmosphere, and everyone's writing screenplays. So I came up with, a, with an idea for a TV pilot called Model United Nations. One of the central structural elements of the book is that Sebastian Kahn, the main character, is also in Model United Nations, just reflective of my own experience. I participated in Model UN in college. 
it's just such a ridiculous, you know, institution because you are flying off to these conferences pretending you are these diplomats from faraway countries, but most students just do it because it's a chance to travel and party and, and drink and get paid by the university to often do that, or at least funded partially. And so to me, Model UN was like a perfect funny way of encapsulating the kind of immaturity of the college experience and their distance from the real world. And so I was trying to turn it into a pilot, which was going to be kind of like just a broad comedy. Screenwriting is difficult in its own way, and I really didn't like doing it. I really, you know, I was really a prose fiction writer more than a screenwriter. And so I think it was 2015 when I started taking courses at UCLA Extension. And I feel like I, I sort of understood certain things about learning how to write and how that fit with how then I wanted to see this novel. One of the big lessons that I learned through UCLA Extension classes was from Lou Matthews, who I took several classes with him. And his fundamental rule of writing was just, it has to be based on sensory experience and sensory detail. And if you can, like, instead of just telling us a character's thoughts, convey what that character is smelling and feeling and hearing. And once I sort of internalized and understood that lesson, I realized that this was how I should approach the character of Sebastian Kahn. If he is supposed to be this hedonistic, you know, like uh, someone who lives in the moment purely for the pleasure of it, doesn't want to think of the future. And, and if he's an art history student who loves looking at paintings, then kind of writing with a highly kind of visual, you know, so every chapter begins with a scene that's that I sort of write almost as if it's a painting where you get this present tense kind of scene where we see exactly what Sebastian is seeing framed like a painting usually involving a woman that he's interested in and which is also a big part of the novel so once I realized that I suddenly understood how to rewrite the novel so I went back and rewrote the whole thing in retrospect it was a great decision at the, at the time it was daunting because you finish this novel and you don't want to go back and just rewrite the whole thing and I do know a lot of people have gone through that with their first novels or even future novels where they just have to jettison a whole draft. And so that's basically what I did, but the novel was much better for it. And the writing process for the second draft, I'm a big fan of Knausgaard's books, My Struggle, not not the Hitler one, the Knausgaard one. Book five is basically him in his 20s writing his first novel. And he does a great job of really, I think, capturing the frenzy that you feel writing that first draft. You need this monomaniacal focus at times, but you can't have it because you have other responsibilities, you know relationship, friendships, work, etc. And so I remember I was reading that novel around that time, I think. It might have been a little bit afterwards. I might have already finished the draft. But I remember recognizing a lot of what I was feeling in that novel, where I thought, oh yeah, it'll probably take me this many months. It almost always takes you longer, because I, I feel, and I'm currently working on, a, on finishing a novel draft, and it's the same thing. I had a plan to finish it by the end of the year, right, in 2019, and I didn't. And now I have a plan to finish it by the end of January, and I don't know if I will. So as you get closer and closer to the end of writing it, it gets harder and harder because you have to bring all the threads together and it has to work emotionally. And I'm one of those writers who I think, especially with the second draft, because it was the second draft, I had told myself, I don't want to write like a super messy second draft and then go back and kind of rewrite it a third time. So I was committed for this draft to make it more polished. As I was writing it, I would edit, I would go back, I would reread the chapters. I let myself be fluid with that. Like some days I would sit down and say, okay, today is going to be an editing day uh, because I just feel like it. Right? I don't feel like writing something new today. Versus a different day, I might say, no, I'm, I'm feeling just this energy in this chapter and I want to finish it. 
you know, I'd never had like a fixed place or anything like that for writing. I live in a, you know, an apartment with my girlfriend. And at the time, it was a, it was a studio apartment. We've since moved to a one bedroom. This was a little bit bigger. But sharing a studio, it was a slightly big studio and it did have a separate kitchen. So there was a door we could close if we needed to just be in separate rooms. I would say it's hard to write in the space that is simultaneously your bedroom and your writing space and everything else. It's like one space for everything in your life is tough. I would go to cafes a lot. I think that was, uh, I think, necessary because just being in a different space and having kind of uh, a different atmosphere. And I never really had a favorite cafe. I would, you know, move around and go to different places because I, for whatever reason, I never felt, oh, it has to be this cafe or it has to be this cafe. My day job outside of writing is tutoring and teaching like a lot of people. And often that has to be very flexible. Like sometimes you'll be tutoring in the, you know, in the afternoon and sometimes you'll be tutoring in the morning and sometimes you'll be tutoring late in the evening and sometimes it's Saturday, sometimes it's Sunday. So I think it requires a bit of flexibility. So the writing process was definitely jumping around, moving around a lot. And weirdly, I don't remember where I was when I finished that second draft. In my mind, there was less fanfare about finishing that draft for whatever reason. I think one of the reasons I think there wasn't that feeling of fanfare was that there was never a moment where it felt like it was totally over, right? There was always a little bit more work to do. So for me, outlining is really important. I've always found outlining to be really essential because I need to know where I'm going with the project. With the second draft, especially, I outlined it a lot. The novel is a series of women that Sebastian Kahn, our protagonist, is interested in at various points in his final year of college and some of the, the not-so-nice things he does as well, not to spoil anything. He's not a great character, morally speaking, right? I knew that that was going to be the structure, and that had sort of been the structure of the first draft as well. But then also, in the second one, I had sort of upped the art history aspect of the novel. I had realized, okay, art history has to be a much more important thematic element to the book, not just like a thing he does on the side. Because there is something, I, I, you know, I was worried, there is something slightly problematic about a man structured around just a series of women. So I needed more of a self-awareness of that, I think. And also I wanted something more than just that to be the structure. And so I decided each chapter was also going to be centered on a painting that he's interested in and that this painting becomes his lens of looking at this particular chapter, so to speak, in his life. So I went through and kind of thought about, okay, what kinds of paintings do I want for each chapter? Where do I want Sebastian to be emotionally in each chapter? So because I had studied screenwriting a little bit, I was really interested in story structure and the three-act story structure, right? And I do think there can be something limiting about adhering to that screenwriting story structure uh, completely, but I do think it does do a good job of outlining a potential like emotional experience that you can have your characters go through, that you can have your audience hopefully go through as well. You know, so, so I mapped out like inciting incident. He meets Fatima at the very beginning of the novel, and she's kind of this practical, pragmatic very serious character who is very much attached to the real world, right? She knows she wants to get a job and she's, you know, interested in Sebastian. And so they end up in a relationship together. And so that kind of creates the tension for the rest of the novel where, you know, he meets other women, right? And oftentimes cheats on his partner, which he wouldn't use that word, but she would use the word. He's not at the stage where he doesn't even consider that as like, a, as like an idea that's too adult for him, right? The book also explores issues of race and the way that race influences who we're attracted to race and relationships, etc. So I knew that that was kind of going to be what you would call in screenwriting terms the inciting incident. So I, I really mapped those out. Inciting incident, where should Sebastian be at the middle? And then what's the kind of low point in the end of Act 2, beginning of Act 3, where things take a turn for the worse? And then what's the climax, right? And so I really traced Sebastian's emotional arc in each chapter. And that helped me determine, okay, what kind of painting would be appropriate for this chapter? Or 
just not even thinking about the novel and I would come across a painting either, you know, looking at it online or looking at it in a museum if I was traveling somewhere. And I would think, oh, that's perfect. I, I need to put that painting in here. So then I would think, okay, which chapter could that make sense in? And kind of would try to rearrange things a little bit. So that's kind of the that's kind of the outlining process that I had. You know, there is a fluidity to writing and things change in your mind as you're writing. And so I, you know, I gave myself that space as well. And so I, you know, changed it a lot, I would say, as I wrote. I think the only moment it ever really felt finished, finished was like when it actually came out. And even then, I remember reading it recently reading a certain chapter again, I found a typo in it and I was a little upset. But at the same time, with a small press especially, I did a lot of the proofreading and editing myself. I think I was making edits and changing certain passages and adding certain things possibly up to three months before it actually came out. I think that did irritate my editor just a little bit. I remember feeling this sudden sensation that, oh, it has become real now that it was about to come out. Because up to that point, I never really wrote with an audience in mind. I would sort of write, you know, my audience was me, if anything. And I think that's important, especially for the first draft. It, it helps get to the truth that you're trying to get at with whatever you're writing. As it became closer and closer to the release date, I started thinking more, should I change that passage? Should I add this? Should I maybe make this? Will people misinterpret this? Should I add this line? That second guessing was probably unnecessary, but I was making small changes adding a line, taking out a line, adding this phrase, adding that phrase, all the way up to, I'd say, like three months before the release. I think I submitted to agents too early. I did the query letters perhaps a little too early. And I remember my first query letters were very bad. They weren't very well written. And I sent them to some of the top agents because those are the people you query first. If I would do anything differently, I would tell myself, wait a little longer, work on it just a little bit more edit it a little bit more, be really happy with that opening because they're going to look at it once. It has to capture them right away. Eventually, I, through another writer friend, he recommended this person who helps write query letters. So I paid her to look at my query letter and help me come up with it. And she was great. And I think that process of just getting notes on your book, and oftentimes we do need notes on our query letters as well. We don't think about it that way. But it's important to have someone from the outside who's never read your book look at your query letter and tell you what they think of when they read it and how they react to it and what you could do to make it more compelling. And I think, unfortunately, I, throughout the query process, I kept editing the book. I kept changing certain things. Any advice I would give to newer writers who are doing their first query process, I would say make sure your novel, and especially I would say your first few pages, are perfect. I wouldn't say the whole thing needs to be perfect because the truth is there will be an editing process even after you get, you know, if you get an agent, you know, I never got an agent. I then went to small presses, which is usually, you know, I'd say the next step. I think for a lot of debut authors, you know, it's really hard to get an agent. And their lists were going smaller and smaller. And so I think the small press route, especially if you're publishing something literary that's a little bit less commercial, I think that's a, you know, that's a really good route. And a lot of times, a lot of small presses, they don't require an agent. Some do. Some are slightly bigger. But the press I published with, 713 Books, they publish debuts only. It's run by an author, Leland Chuck. Uh, I had actually heard of him before because there was a Salon article he had written that had gone viral. And he basically says, if you come across a book published by 713 Books in a bookstore, you shouldn't see any difference between that and like a big press book, except for the fact that it's paperback, not hardcover, right? You know, he's really great about this idea that not that anyone can start a press, but that it's easier to start a press than ever before. He accepted the book in 2017. And at the time, the book was about 100,000 words, kind of long for a debut novel. His first note was, it needs to be shorter. It needs to be between 60 and 70,000 words. 
And then he gave me some really good structural notes, basically. He said, you should combine these two chapters, you should maybe change this character a little bit, and you should bring up some more thematic issues related to race. He's a person of color as well. And that was the angle that he was interested in, the kind of like Muslim American dealing with issues of identity through coming of age. And so with his edits, they felt focused in a way that I really liked. With writers groups, uh, obviously I love writers groups and you know workshops and things like that. But often the notes you get in workshop, you have to sift through and figure out which ones, which ones make sense for the, the goal that you're going for and which ones might be well-meaning, but don't maybe make sense for the ones you're, you know, uh, you're trying to work towards. And so with working with an editor, what was really refreshing and nice about it was you, you trust that his edits, and I trusted that Leland's edits were for the good and interest of the project, right? And I never felt, I understood why. I understood the, the meaning behind the edits. And so when he made his sort of big structural edits, they were mostly about condensing it a little bit. And then they were about two chapters towards the end, which the basically the pacing dragged a little bit and he wanted to condense those two chapters at first i had been afraid that i would feel too attached to all my characters and to the structure and the chapters at the end but i realized that he was right and also that i had a few people tell me since reading the book that that chapter was their favorite the one that i had rewritten and combined and so it's interesting to think oh that's the chapter that leland had wanted me to edit and combine together and now people are telling me that that is their favorite chapter and i look back and i think yeah that's actually one of my favorite chapters too so i had a great experience doing the editing the final phase before the book came out we had to do a few things the cover design happened about a year before and that was that was great I, the publisher brought in a cover designer and she was really attentive to what i wanted the cover to look like as well i was very i wanted there to be a painting I hadn't decided which one. I just knew it would have to be a painting of some type. And then she basically gave me several design options. It looked great. I thought, yeah, I was really happy with the cover design. Title is actually funny, too. So the original title was something really bad. It was Reflections of the Young Man in Love. The new title, Portrait of Sebastian Kahn, is a lot better. And that was my editor and publisher's suggestion. The difficulty of titles is that because you as an author have worked on a project for so long, an abstract sounding title means a lot more to you. It signifies so much more. It has all these associations. To me, the word reflections was a pun that also referred to mirrors, which is a big theme in the novel. And my editor basically said, look, people are going to look at the title. The most important thing when they look at a book first, title and cover, and you got to grab them with the title. And he said, the title needs to be more specific and more catchy. And he had me brainstorm 12 different titles. Portrait of Sebastian Kahn was, in, in fact, one of my throwaway titles where I was trying to be as literal as possible. And he said, that's the one. And now looking back, I realize he's right. But I think it's, there's something to having someone else help you with your title in the same way about having someone else help you with your query letter, because you need a kind of distance to create a good title, I think, because someone else can tell you what a title means to them, having never heard or read anything about the, you know, anything about the book. And I've heard from other authors that that's their experience, too, that often their agents or their editors will give them a new title, and that will help a lot. After the book came out, because I worked in a small press, there was no publicist, right, no publicity person. And that meant that I had to do all the publicity myself. I remember Lou, actually, he had said to me, there's two ways to do it. You could hire a publicist and that'll be expensive, or you could just do it yourself and it'll be cheap and dirty. <laughs> and I liked that phrase. I feel like I was fumbling around a lot. What I did was every morning, basically about six months before the book came out, that was when galley copies went out. My responsibility to basically contact reviewers in the absence of a publicist, you know, Leland would do his part as well. 
But a lot of it was my responsibility to contact some reviewers and see if they were interested in a galley copy, interested in reviewing it. For about uh, six months leading up to the release, I would say to myself, I have to send at least one email to one person about the book. That was where the diligence really had to come in. I think with, with writing an actual novel, you can kind of rely on inspiration and kind of be a little wishy-washy with the diligent schedule. But once it came to actual publicity, I had to do a lot of it myself. And I, I didn't enjoy it, to be honest. I found it to be a really frustrating process. And I hope, uh, fingers crossed, I hope my next novel, I am with a press that has a publicist who does all that for me because it was not, it was not fun. You know, it's, it's, it's a lot of drudgery of sending emails and oftentimes you don't get a response or you'll get a polite no, right? And even if you do get a yes, that's not a guarantee that they're going to read and review the book. They might just be interested in a galley. Organizing bookstore readings was also challenging. So I really enjoyed my Los Angeles reading. That was great because all my friends came and it was, you know, it was really, it was really fun. And it was the book launch. That was great. And I, I did it at Skylight Books and they were excellent. At first, I had worried that being from a small press would be slight disadvantage. Most bookstores I found are very accommodating to small press books as well. The main thing is just, can you bring a crowd? And I think that's where I started to encounter certain difficulties about the book tour process, where I realized that, oh yeah, a lot of times I don't really know anyone in a lot of cities, and so I wouldn't be able to draw a crowd. And I think with a big press, they might be willing to have you do an event, if it's a big book or something, at a city, okay, only three people show up but they'll schedule you and pay for like 60 events or something right over the course of a few months. And that means that, okay, maybe only three people show up here and three people show up here, but maybe 10 people show up there or 20 people show up there. With a small press, because I was sort of funding the tour myself, I had to be very selective about, okay, like I'll do an event in New York and I'll do this reading series here, but I'm not going to tour the country or anything like that. Once I did the book tour itself, though, once things kicked off after the release, it was really fun. It was, I treated it like this is my chance to just visit some of these cities if I'm going there. So I did two or three events in New York, many of them with reading series. So other people are reading as well. So it was also a good way to meet other authors, you know, other people who have books coming out. When it comes to writing about yourself, I originally approached this novel as a novel about myself. And over the course of writing it, it became different. I separated myself from the character and the character became someone very different from me. I would say to writers who are maybe writing something based on their own life, I think the decision you probably have to make at the very beginning is, is this going to be super realistic? When I'm writing about myself, am I writing about myself and sort of taking myself seriously? Or am I trying to like write about a certain feeling I had or aspect of myself? Like, do I, how, how close to reality does this character need to be? Obviously, autofiction, big genre nowadays. And I think it's great. You know, I mentioned Knausgaard earlier. I think there is a great value to writing about yourself. And I think I'm always envious of people who can do that because I've, I, I think maybe in the future I will want to write a very kind of like honest and true and really direct kind of story about my own experience. But I think I decided early on that this was not going to be that, that I wasn't going to write my own experience. Once I kind of made that decision, it freed up a lot of room to make things up, to uh, really, really expand really, you know, make things up. And, and towards the end of the novel, I do have a ironic meta reflection on autofiction where I sort of make fun of myself a little bit, where I, I sort of say, you know, the character at the end, he's like staring at his uh, reflection in, in like a museum window, which is an echo of how the book begins. And he's thinking about everything that's happened. And he sort of says, oh, I, I think I want to write a novel about myself, but I'll write it in the third person so I can really look at myself. It'll be a real portrait of myself. Even if I made myself taller and more attractive and more intelligent, and even if I made up events that never happened, 
wouldn't it still be real in some way? And that was my way of kind of wink, wink, nudge, nudge to certain people who are friends of mine. They'll, they'll recognize the kernel of reality behind the story. And so that was my way of kind of playing with that trope of writing about yourself. People who are interested in writing based on their own experience decide early on, are you writing a realist kind of novel about yourself where you're really trying to get at like the actuality of what you felt, which a lot of people have done? I think that's very difficult, but I think that's very rewarding in its own way. Or are you, how willing are you to fictionalize it? And I think be willing to fictionalize it if you're not committed to writing about yourself, because sometimes the most interesting truths within a novel come from the scenes that are completely fictional. And now, a reading from The Portrait of Sebastian Kahn. Sebastian Kahn stares at his reflection in the window. Black, wavy hair, light olive skin, high cheekbones, and aquiline nose. It's the kind of face young women find attractive. Dashing and mysterious in its racial ambiguity, the genetic result of two half-Pakistani, half-white parents, aged 18 years and 231 days, and accompanying a figure that likewise strikes a desirable chord in the female heart. Tall, but not too tall, 5 feet 8 inches. Hipster svelte, but not emaciated. 145 pounds, attired in a white-buttoned blue blazer, slim-fitting crimson chinos, and dark brown leather shoes, all worn with a pose of aristocratic nonchalance. It's the eyes, though, that give the image its aesthetic harmony. Large, dark brown eyes, of a brown so dark and deep that it swallows up the pupils. Confident, graceful, hypnotic eyes, framed in dark-rimmed glasses that only magnify their power, and containing in their swirling depths all the infinite wisdom of a young man. The window belongs to the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and beyond Sebastian's reflection lies that city, its red-brick buildings strewn with autumn leaves, the skies above gray and cloudy. But Sebastian sees only his reflection. He runs a hand through his hair, and notes via the window as a girl, mid-twenties at the oldest and dressed with art student chic, glances up and lets her gaze linger on him as she walks down the marble-floored museum hallway. He listens to the echo of her shoes and smiles when her steps briefly slow as she passes behind him. Sebastian turns from the window and walks down the hallway to the adjoining room. He's in Philadelphia for only a few more hours, the Model United Nations conference he was here for is over. Favorite. Before the next room, he finds it, hanging unceremoniously by the doorway, overlooked by all the passers-by, eager to plunge headfirst into the 20th century rooms beyond, though not by Sebastian, who, like the painting, prefers to remain here, firmly rooted in the 19th century. The Thorny Path by Thomas Couture, 1873. The painting centers on a woman who is almost naked, wearing draped around her body only a single white sheet that nevertheless manages to leave exposed both her breasts. She sits enthroned atop a carriage, which, with a jaunty tilt of her head, she wills forward through a shadowy forest path. Below her, each clutching a rope that leads back to her magnificent seat, are not horses, but men. A nobleman, a soldier, a scholar, and a troubadour. 
Despite the surrounding darkness, the woman shines, as if with divine light. As a whole, the image is meant to be an allegorical critique of the decadence and immorality of 19th century French society, or so the description beside it says. But Sebastian cares little for Couture's rather obvious didactic intent. In fact, his gaze barely lingers on the woman, naked though she is, and instead focuses on the men before her. The nobleman is fat and tired, his stomach hanging grotesquely out before him. The soldier is defeated, his sword pointed at the dirt and his face turned away in shame. The scholar is distant, a pen in his hand and his gaze far away. Only the troubadour has his head held high, his expression proud and glowing as he pulls the carriage forward. To Sebastian, this troubadour becomes the unintended center of the piece. Sebastian is not stupid, a straight-A student, in fact, and so he does immediately recognize the painting's stern morality and the not-so-subtle reference to the transience of youth in the form of the old crone, hunched in the carriage behind the semi-naked woman. But he chooses to ignore it all, the crone and the larger message. Art for him is about the perceiver and not the artist, and Sebastian reads the painting not as one of shame or sadness, but as a celebration of the troubadour's spirit. Alone of all these men, the troubadour pulls the carriage with purpose and optimism, happy to bear a burden as exquisite as this woman. Sebastian had a similar interpretation of another couture favorite of his, Romans During the Decadence, 1847. Couture intended that piece as a moral condemnation of drunken debauchery, Yet to Sebastian, the piled naked ladies and men in laurels and togas, lying amidst columns and marble statues, were altogether a beautiful celebration of bodies and worldly pleasure. But Sebastian often ignores the obvious thematic elements of art. He is the kind of young man who reads Frankenstein as a defense of ambition, and views La Dolce Vita as a glorification of the hedonistic life. His favorite literary figures are Amory Blaine, Julian Sorel, Don Quixote, and Don Draper. Most tragically of all, he believes the picture of Dorian Gray to be a celebration of the Epicurean spirit of Henry Wotton, instead of a critique of decadence and aestheticism. And so, what can one expect when a young man like that gazes up at a painting such as this? Staring at it thus, Sebastian only reaffirms his decision to study art history. To him, nothing is more beautiful than that which is real and yet still immortal, like these figures in this painting. He imagines the actual model for the troubadour, a young man once, but aging quickly even just a few years after posing, lines appearing on the forehead and around the mouth, the rosy cheeks and lips fading to yellow, the beautiful locks of hair thinning and falling out, the fine, erect Apollonian figure flattening and developing a gut, the knees starting to ache from any prolonged period of standing before eventually giving out entirely. Now, of course, the model is long dead, his bones turning to ash somewhere in a Parisian catacomb. But the figure in the painting will always be young. And so, in that troubadour's upturned face, Sebastian imagines his own eyes reflected back. As far as he's concerned, a piece of art is just a mirror, and Sebastian can't help but long to be young forever, too, to have his reflection in the window proceed unchanged, Dorian-like, through the ages.
In truth, though, Sebastian's love of art is more complex than simple youthful yearning. Because when he was 12, his mother died, and 19th century paintings like this one provided him a refuge from the pain of her loss. Sebastian may insist that his tastes are due entirely to his devotion to the ideal of beauty, and not at all to anything as bourgeois as childhood trauma. But that is simply another of his classic misinterpretations. And so even Sebastian sometimes pauses when staring at this painting, detecting hints of mortality in the immortal canvas and wondering, is this young troubadour not deceived? Is this bard of love and beauty not just caught up in the lie of his own song? The Right Process is hosted and curated by me, Charlie Jensen, and recorded at the UCLA Extension Studios. This season was produced by Jamie Moss. Audio support was provided by Andre Nikolaev. The Writer's Program offers courses, certificates, and services that help writers achieve their writing goals one page at a time. For more information, visit writers.uclaextension.edu.